To get better outcomes for patients and staff, clinical care delivery must evolve. That's at the heart of today's WIHI, and it's why we're proud to invite you to Clinicians Leading Improvement, a new professional development program from IHI. If you're a physician, a clinical team member, or an administrator responsible for managing care, and you're unsure how to make and sustain positive changes, this program is for you. Clinicians Leading Improvement is an intensive four-month program that will give you the skills and tools you need to lead clinical change in today's value-based care models. Learn how to build a strategy centered around high-quality care that can lead to better outcomes for patients and staff, increased team engagement, and a healthy clinical culture. Clinicians Leading Improvement starts on February 11, 2019, right here at the IHI in Boston. To find out if this program is right for you and your organization, join our free informational call on November 28th or visit IHI.org clinicians for more information. Now, here's WIHI. What's the difference between the expertise needed to deliver effective care to a single patient versus organizing and leading an effective care delivery system? Well, plenty, says Dr. Brent James in a recent blog on IHI.org. Dr. James has so far taught more than 5,000 senior physicians, nurses, and administrators the fundamentals of healthcare quality improvement in order to bring about that effective care delivery system. However, the intent isn't simply to bolt QI onto clinical expertise or managerial acumen. The goal is to integrate clinical knowledge with improvement knowledge so healthcare professionals can lead from one shared mindset. Amazing to think of that. So why does this matter so much? Well, we invite you to stick around as we probe that question on this edition of WIHI, and I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. You can find us this way, live, and welcome. And after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes as a podcast. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Brent James couldn't be more clear-eyed about the imperative for clinicians and administrators to gain the skills to lead improvement. Our two other panelists on today's program exemplify what's possible when that happens. And as doctors, they've both also thought a lot about the ways QI changes narratives and offers physicians some new ways to work with others, including patients, to achieve groundbreaking results. All right, joining by phone, all our panelists are actually on the phone line today. Brent James is known internationally for his work in clinical quality improvement, patient safety, and the infrastructure that underlies successful improvement efforts. Dr. James formerly served as Chief Quality Officer of Intermountain Healthcare. A welcome to you, Brent. Thanks for having me today, Madge. It's a delight to be with you. Wonderful. All right. Also on the phone, uh, we've got Cater Mate. He is the Chief Innovation and Education Officer at IHI and a research professor at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Mate's scholarly work has focused focus, excuse me, on health system design, healthcare quality, strategies for achieving large-scale change, and approaches to improving value. Welcome, Kadar. 
Ed, great to be with you. All right. And Kavita Bhavan is with us. She's Associate Vice Chair of Innovation and High Value Care at UT Southwestern Department of Internal Medicine. And Dr. Bhavan is also uh, the Chief Innovation Officer at Parkland Health and Hospital System. Her current research and work focuses on self-care models, a very exciting one going on there. More on that in a moment. And we're working on getting Kavita's phone line uh, connected, but she's mostly with us. There you see her wonderful bio slide. So she'll be uh, connected to us in just a moment. All right, we're going to get underway and Brent's going to lead us off. Uh, We're going to start with the idea, Brent, of clinicians leading improvement. So who are we talking about and what are we talking about? And are we trying to solve a problem right now? Thanks a lot, Brent. You know, Madge, the, the truth is, as everybody on this call knows, the rate of change in healthcare delivery has been increasing dramatically. At the same time, our core business is clinical care delivery. It's, it's medicine. It's caring for patients who have healthcare problems. That care is actually performed, delivered by teams of clinicians, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, therapists, working together around very complex issues. Um, in that setting, Real change means that you have to somehow change the patient experience at the front line. And that change means that we have to deeply engage the people who do the daily work. Now, I'm going to suggest to you in that setting that it really helps if you speak the language of medicine. Um, We have a very, very deep culture already within the clinical sciences. Um, It goes back over 4,000 years. It's present in the heart of any good clinician, we're we're selected for it, we're trained to it. It's massively reinforced during the course of our professional life. Uh, If you can somehow tap that, tap into it, it makes a profound difference. I would even argue that any culture that we try to define within a care delivery setting is layered in on top of that. This is the foundation and this is the bedrock. It's led by physicians and nurses and frankly, over the years, we have a language that we use for it. We have an approach that we take to it. Truthfully, it's one of the reasons that many clinicians don't particularly trust administrators. It's because they don't use that same language or that same approach, and so we fail to communicate at a fundamental level. What we do in the course is teach clinicians not just the principles of system theory, not just database problem solving, not just how you put the pieces together for ideal care at the lowest necessary cost, but how to build that edifice firmly on the foundation of our shared values within the healing professions. Uh, We've been doing it for 30 years. It works on a broad scale. Um, It's fun, frankly, and it's associated with dramatic improvements in clinical outcomes. Dr. Deming showed us, of course, is the best way to get your costs under control are to improve the quality of your services and products that you produce. And we've demonstrated that broadly in healthcare too just one system across four years, we dropped cost of operations by 13% by improving clinical outcomes, almost $700 million in savings. In other words, this is approach that hits on both sides. Uh, frankly, it's purposefully targeted uh, at the language of medicine uh, to physicians, nurses, pharmacists, therapists. But at the same time, it meets the direct mission needs 
of anyone who's engaged in healthcare delivery. So with that bit of background, Madge, back to you. All right. Thank you. Um, I I love this. Um, thank you, Brent. And I, I do love this far side um, <laughs> cartoon. Um, and uh, I'm going to just ask... Uh, a few more. We, uh, Brent had sent me a couple more that maybe we'll just, John, sort of scroll through. And I think you're going to hear these ideas uh, throughout the hour. Um, the, in some ways, I, I have to say, Brent, you make it all makes so much sense when we're listening to you about this. So uh, I invite everyone to kind of get into that mindset of how possible this is. Um, next one, John. There was one more here. Some of the things um, Brent is also a, 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 go ahead. Yeah, please. You know, just a comment. Um, when you come at it from this angle, you can make an absolutely compelling case that this kind of an approach should be the core of what it means to be a professional. That when you signed up to be a physician or a nurse, this is what you signed up for. And it's fun. It's meaningful. It's massively purpose driven. And when you can tap into that, the tools that we use, the approaches that we use, take on a whole new meaning. And it's associated with, well, not just better care, but far more fun in care. Uh, Devin used to talk about joy in work. And we talked about how you put joy into clinical work based upon our shared values at a very deep level. You know, most people who come to a course like this, their job is to lead change in their home organizations. Uh, over the years, we've encountered most of the arguments you get back from that crusty old surgeon, um, that old traditional administrator, and they're really good answers. And what we do is give people the answers, the logic, the evidence, and the answers to make you a dramatically more successful clinical change leader. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And Brent, uh, we'll uh, hear from Kadar and Kavita and then uh, kind of come back to you. And of course, everyone will be here for discussion in the second half hour. I do want to acknowledge that Brent was alluding to a course, uh, and that is a course that's coming up here at IHI in February on Clinicians Leading Improvement. And we'll uh, flash that uh, slide for you again uh, before the hour's up. And uh, there's an info call coming up. Uh, we hope you'll take part in just to learn more about this course. All right, I'm going to turn to Kadar now. And Kadar, um, I was saying before about narratives changing, and one of those narratives uh, has been over the years in QI, and certainly ever since I've been at IHI, how do we engage physicians in QI? And that seems has seemed to be the operative phase, a uh, phrase, excuse me. Uh, how can we persuade physicians and get them involved in the merits of QI? Um, how much has that strategy worked, and maybe has it run its course? Thanks. Well, thanks, Madge. Um, you know, the, the the notion of engaging physicians or persuading them. It, al it always makes me think that the clinician is somehow the passive recipient of the work, you know, that the clinician is somehow disengaged and the, and the work of the quality improver or otherwise is to somehow engage the doctors or the nurses uh, in an initiative that is, you know, in some ways, someone else's priority. Uh, you know, this is this is uh, um, uh, important for us to talk about this. Now, you mentioned this about physicians, engage, physician engagement, but I want to clarify that this is really about clinicians of all kinds is physicians and nurses and and i think that the, the whole concept of engagement here 
um, is is a is a fraught concept because then we wonder why there is disengagement. Well, you know, Paul Batalden and Brent and others have taught us that every system is is perfectly designed to get the results that it's getting. So if we're getting disengagement now, uh, it's perhaps because in very busy uh, professional lives of, of physicians and nurses, how much leftover time is there to get engaged in someone else's priority project? I suppose the way I think of it is a little different. Clinicians uh, of all kinds, uh, nurses, physicians, et cetera, are, are used to leading. They're used to leading clinical teams, uh, clinical systems, clinical enterprises. Uh, so much of what we do in quality improvement is trying to get to better outcomes with our patients that I think there's a natural alignment between quality improvement and, and being a good clinician. Some of what Brent just talked about a minute ago. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with several of the points he was making. Uh, we want to create better outcomes, better care experiences uh, for and with our patients. We want affordable and accessible care. We want systems that reliably bring the best of what we know uh, to everyone who needs it. Uh, and it's my belief that if invited to lead on such improvement activities, which are so deeply aligned with our professional duties, our commitments as professionals and our culture as clinicians, we would eliminate the what I think is a manufactured problem of physician disengagement. Um, and so, I, I mean, I guess I would say almost every clinician sees system failures uh, in their practice environment. I, I challenge us to find a, a physician or a nurse uh, at this point who's practicing here in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world uh, that isn't seeing system failures all over the place at this point in time in, in clinical practice. Uh, my trainees, uh, you know, have uh, routinely see communication defects and failures every day on the on the clinical wards. It's it's part of what we do, unfortunately, today. The first failure when I was a, a, a at an earlier point in my career, the first failures that I saw uh, were waiting times in Rwanda, in a Rwandan outpatient HIV treatment facility. Uh, not necessarily because uh, we didn't know what antiretroviral drugs to prescribe and that those would in fact improve lives. The problem was waiting times and, and the queues and lines that sat outside of the facility uh, that required not clinical acumen, but a different vocabulary for systems improvement. And you know, you, it, it would be fair to say, I think that being the smartest physician or, or nurse on the planet is only as effective as a system that allows that knowledge to reach the patient. So long waiting lines, no care, people died needlessly. It's as simple as that. Uh, so I'd say not only is QI and clinical knowledge, not only are they synergistic and mutually re reinforcing, I might go a bit further to say that the, bis the best clinical knowledge is no longer sufficient. We have to treat the lymphoma and the conditions of care that surround the patient, have to remove the appendix with skill and ensure that the wound check occurs. We have to prescribe the ARVs and eliminate the waiting line. Uh, I think clinicians must lead improvement as part of our professional uh, responsibility. Okay. Thanks a lot, Kedar. Really appreciate that. And uh, if some of that thinking uh, resonates for you, feel free to chat in even before we get to uh, Q&A and discussion. Um, as far as, you know, Kedar mentioned also sort of what he, some of the early things that he saw in his career that cried out for uh, system level uh, solutions. Uh, perhaps uh, some of you can recall uh, some of those own moments for yourself in your own training. All right, we're going to turn to uh, Kavita Bhavan next. And Kavita, you've been listening to Brent and Kadar sort of outline uh, some of the parameters and ideas we're trying to bring forward. 
uh, when we really marry uh, improvement knowledge and professional knowledge and one's clinical expertise. Um, We asked you to be part of the program in part because it's clearly opened a way for you to do some very good work, you and your team. Uh, So why don't you first tell us what what about what Brent and Kadar has said so far uh, makes some sense to you? And then t- talk to us about uh, what's been going on at Parkland. Thanks a lot. Sure. Thank you. And I'm, I'm very happy to be joining this this uh, discussion. Uh, what really resonates with me, um, having heard uh, the discussion to, to this point, is really this sense of um, it, it does. It takes a team. It's not just physicians. It's physicians, nurses, care managers, social workers, pharmacists, this multidisciplinary team that we work with in our uh, healthcare settings, and being purpose-driven. Um, thinking about, you know, sort of what defines us as a team and what is that common shared goal or shared purpose that allows us as we get really deeply engaged in quality improvement and improving the care that we provide for our patients um, to find that joy in work. So that, that really resonates very well, and I think these are all themes um, that pertain to sort of our experience with developing a program at Parkland. Okay. Fire away. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, what you see here on the on this very first slide is just to kind of situate you all. Um, I'm uh, speaking to you from Dallas, and on the far um, left-hand corner of the slide is the new Parkland Memorial Hospital, a very large safety net um, hospital for our Dallas County residents. We take care of a number of uninsured and underinsured patients in this facility. And on the other end of the slide is our new Clements University Hospital. Both of these hospitals kind of emerged just in the last three years. So we've been very lucky to be able to practice here, and that's uh, UT Southwestern's University Hospital. And in the next slide, um, I just wanted to kind of touch on, I think, some of the important things, like many other medical centers and and, um, facilities, healthcare systems around the country, we too have our mission. Um, And I think some of the areas that I've highlighted within our mission speak to how our program came to be. But it's recognizing that we want to promote health in a healthy society so that we can achieve full human potential, educating our future scientists and caregivers to serve the needs of, of our patients. Um, and looking at really what are the unmet needs and and developing um, programs around those unmet needs and innovating um, for better care as we approach challenges um, that will be coming our way in the future. In the next slide, um, what you'll see is I think more globally um, the challenge that we face in an evolving healthcare system um, where we're really moving towards volume-driven to value-driven healthcare, and the goal here is to really um, improve quality continuously and ideally lower cost. Uh, The next slide gets more specific from that global challenge to a challenge that we faced um, at our county uh, safety net hospital, Parkland, um, in 2009, and this was more specific to uh, access of care for our largely uninsured patients to what we call OPAT, or outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy. This particular population of patients um, were patients that had complex infections and were hospitalized. And we know from clinical practice that infections of the bone and joint or perhaps a heart valve do require longer courses of antibiotic treatment, sometimes up to six weeks of treatment um, or more to get resolution of infection. 
in and of itself, it's not a new concept to complete this kind of treatment at home, um, in what we call an OPAT setting. In fact, the concept was first described as early as the 1970s in the pediatric literature. Um, and over the years, it's become a widely accepted practice in this country. Um, with improved vascular access, we can put PICC lines in for prolonged treatment courses and better antibiotics that we can dose at lower frequencies, um, et cetera. But the uninsured patients that we were seeing at Parkland in 2009 were really limited in, in their options to access um, these traditional forms of OPAT care for their complex infections. And they would often, as a result, remain in the hospital um, for up to six weeks at a time. So in the next slide, um, what you'll see, uh, well, this is just, again, a little bit of a background. It essentially just means that we're providing IV antibiotic therapy um, in at least two doses on different days without an intervening hospitalization. Our goals are straightforward to allow our patients to complete treatment safely and effectively um, in the comfort of their home or another ambulatory setting so they're no longer in the acute bed um, and avoid the inconveniences, complications, and expense of a hospitalization. Uh, our next slide here shows um, what happens, though, for our uninsured patients. It is a different story. In the first couple of days of any given hospitalization, the intensity of services with that steep slope really kind of explains why they need to be in an acute bed. Once we have a diagnosis and a treatment plan, however, it really plateaus off and you don't need to be in an acute bed uh, just for daily infusions of IV antibiotics. Um, what was happening historically was this was a burden on the patient um, you know, they would, by and large, rather be home and uh, being able to get back to their activities of daily living, uh, whether it's work or, or caring for, um, uh, you know, others at home. Um, and it was also a burden on safety net hospital settings like Parkland, where we were constantly facing, you know, a full emergency room in a full hospital. Uh, and the next slide. Uh, we will show you what we did to kind of address this issue was we identified a problem. We came together as a group, a multidisciplinary group, and thought, you know, what can we do differently to improve the quality of care that our patients are receiving and improve this access issue? And we developed a program um, around self-care as the innovation, and it's self-administered outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy, the idea being that we would teach and train our patients at the bedside um, at a very fourth grade uh, literacy level um, and in a bilingual education uh, material that was developed in both English and Spanish. Many of our patients may have only completed uh, fifth or sixth grade formal education. And what we would essentially do is teach them how to self-administer these IV antibiotics by gravity at home. They weren't going home with any kind of pumps or elastomeric devices, um, really uh, essentially sometimes using a coat hanger as an anchor on a nail um, as a de facto I, uh, uh, IV pole and giving themselves IV antibiotics. Um, we did this successfully by employing a teach-back method to make sure that our patients really understood what we were asking them to do and that we could assess um, for competency with a bundled sort of checklist that we created um, with the input, again, from all members of our team, from social work to uh, pharmacy to um, our transitional care nurses. We identified a list of tasks that a patient had to perform on return demonstration several times while in the hospital still to really ensure a safe and effective transfer from hospital to home to complete treatment. Um, in the next slide, um, we'll show you in the first four years 
of our program, we wanted to uh, look at how do we compare to the standard of care. So patients that were leaving our hospital and going home um, with standard forms of OPAT and looking at that subset population against our uninsured patients um, who were being taught to do everything at home essentially and then come back to visit us once a week for pick line maintenance care, lab draws, and then intermittent visits to see our physicians in a, in a dedicated uh, OPAT clinic at Parkland. We found that our patients, in fact, actually had a 47% lower 30-day readmission rate compared to patients that were receiving standard of care OPAT, whether it's with home health nurses or skilled nursing facility, for example. And this uh, stayed true for almost every interval as we looked out to an entire year. They had better cure rates for various diseases, for example, and bone and joint infections. In the first four years of operation, we were able to save more than 27,000 inpatient uh, hospital bed days that could then be used with better resource utilization to take care of our acutely ill patients. Um, and our CEO estimated roughly $40 million of savings in those first four years. Um, the benefits of the program uh, were many, but include a decreasing risk of nosocomial exposure. Um, so from a quality improvement standpoint, we know that staying in the hospital for prolonged periods of time does put you at risk of getting other infections. We were able to improve resource utilization. We uh, allowed our patients the ability to return to work and their activities of daily living faster. And we've also seen a potential impact on comorbid conditions, including better glycemic control, for example, with patients who have diabetes. Um, and in the next slide, it, uh, some of the lessons that we were able to learn is that by coming together as a group, looking at a problem and designing a solution and really fully engaging the potential of all members of our group from various expertise, we developed a program that when we studied it was shown to be safe and effective. Multidisciplinary input was critical to the success of this transitional of care model. And we believe that we were able to achieve the triple aim um, with effective patient engagement, but also the full engagement of our, our team that came together to, um, to see this through. Um, we talk about sort of the paradigm shift that occurred with our patients where they went from being passive recipients of care to active participants in care. And this is probably what's really led to um, some of the really good clinical outcomes that we've seen. But I cannot, uh, you know, underscore the importance of our, our staff. And so for our nurses, you know, we talk about joy and work. Um, part of that joy at work in, in seeing this program evolve was um, going from sort of providing the antibiotic to becoming the coaches that would teach them how to give themselves the antibiotics, the patients to give themselves the antibiotic at home, and championing them all the way through successful outcomes. Um, it really has brought us together and given us a sort of a shared purpose and an identity, really, um, that we're very proud of here at Parkland. Well, thank you so much, Kavita. And uh, Kavita, rolled through very rapidly uh, work that's gone on over a good period of time. Uh, in part, uh, we have discussed uh, some of this work uh, on a previous WIHI on self-care, uh, particularly with this antibiotic infusion therapy. But in this case, what we're really interested in, or among the many things we're interested in, is the uh, aspect of uh, where this all comes from. Uh, to lead in this way. Uh, and as Kavita has noted, there are certainly many others involved in this work, including patients. So Brent, I want to come back to you 
and ask you, uh, as you now hear a little bit about this work at Parkland, uh, how does it sort of connect up with what you think are key ingredients or drivers of clinicians leading improvement? What does it say to you uh, about the possibilities? We just one way of framing it, man, back in 2010, Institute of Medicine at the time, now it's National Academy of Medicine, we, we ran an expert group. Uh, we were looking at waste in healthcare, but using Deming's models under a Deming approach, of course, waste derives from poor quality. Um, so any area, any opportunity where uh, improving the quality of care could reduce the cost of care. <laughs> Short order, our one-line conclusion for the whole big report, we said that a minimum of 30% and probably over 50% of all money spent on healthcare delivery is waste. Um, truth in advertising, when I do it, my models show over 65% waste. Uh, Kavita's example is a beautiful example of it, but I just wanted to show people how big the scale is, how large the opportunity is. It's truly massive. The primary underlying cause is complexity. Um, the way David Eddy, technically the father of evidence-based medicine, he's the guy who first used the term in the literature and popularized it broadly. People like David Sackett spread it, which may be an even more important role. The way that Eddie said it, though, at Stanford, he said the complexity of modern medicine exceeds the capacity of the unaided expert mind. And what we've seen evolve in the last years is a method for dealing with that complexity. Um, it's based firmly in our shared values in the healing professions. A slide I showed earlier that it says it's not really new. I believe that I was taught in the core method uh, way back in the 70s when I was a surgical intern and resident. Um, it's called mass customization, and there are formal tools for doing it. Uh, what we've seen on a broad scale, as you apply those tools, you can show dramatic improvements in clinical outcomes on a very broad scale, and it's associated with truly massive cost savings. Um, you can see why it would appeal to any health professional. The idea that we could be so much better for our patients than our own needs. Oh, oh, by the way. As a side effect, it ensures our financial survival. That is why this change resides naturally within the healing professions. Um, yep. It fits perfectly. Thank you. And it's the yep. methods by which you then spread that problem. Thanks, Brent. Kadar, thoughts? Uh, I appreciate that, Brent. Uh, Kadar, some reflections. I know you're very familiar with, with this work that Kavita was describing. Yeah, a couple of thoughts that come to mind right away. One is that, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, first of all, sorry, a meta comment on some level, I think Kavita, you know, in, in many ways, I think the work that you've done just exemplifies how important it is to have a group of a, a team of clinicians partnering together to devise or design a improvement activity that had the effects that you described. It's just, you know, you don't, you can't get to that unless you have, I think, clinic, clinicians partnering with patients to co-produce a, a better and, and more uh, uh, successful care model um, in the case of outpatient uh, uh, IV therapy. So, I mean, you know, this is a, 
it's just a good example, I think, of exactly what we're talking about, about a clinician uh, leading an improvement activity or a series of clinicians or group of clinicians leading an improvement activity together with their patients, uh, building a, a different model. The other thing I would just say is that I think this activity, this kind of work, you know, we face a big problem right now um, around uh, burnout, joy in work. Uh, you know, it's all over the news and in the press and in the literature now about how uh, clinicians are routinely getting burnt out uh, and experiencing declining uh, rates of joy in their work. A lot of that has to do with uh, uh, systems defects that are present in our systems today that make our jobs challenging, frustrating in, in some instances, and, and very, uh, uh, in, in some cases, uh, the, the worst part of our days. Uh, to have a, a, a mechanism, a vocabulary, and a series of methods that allows you to not just see those first, those systems failures as inevitable, uh, but rather solvable problems is an incredibly empowering uh, uh, aspect of, uh, or maybe even a byproduct of learning about improvement. And so I I think the 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 opportunity here is 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 great for clinicians to really not only understand QI but CQI and quality improvement and systems improvement activities as the antidote or part of the antidote anyway to the burnout problem that we face uh, among clinicians today. So I, I just want to pause there. Back to you, Matt. Thanks so much. Um, we're going to get to your questions in the chat right now. And thank you for uh, putting them in and addressing these to all participants so we can all see them. Um, I think I want to ask you one more quick question, though, Brent, just to sort of tee up some things. Why do you think, uh, or did you have a moment in your own, although you've you've been at this now for a while, and maybe Kavita, you can jump in as, as well. Where is the resistance? You know, if something like all that we're talking about today makes so much sense, um, where are those weak spots? Where is the resistance? What is it that uh, clinicians and others may be cynical about or not quite seeing? Um, what do you have to persuade people of? Uh, Brent, let me start with you, and then I'll go back to Kavita. Usually happens at two levels, Madge. The first, uh, right around the turn of the 19th century, we've got the current version of care delivery practice. It's um, in the literature. It's called craft of medicine. The idea of each clinician as a standalone expert, uh, Barry Weed, who invented soap notes in the problem-oriented medical record, described it well. He said the basic idea is you load all the evidence into the human mind, the expert human mind, then expect that mind from memory to apply it correctly to patients. The trouble is, is over time, the same science that made us so effective clinically uh, made care increasingly complex. So we're back to Eddie. The complexity of modern medicine exceeds the capacity of the unaided expert mind. It demanded new tools. Now, the fact is, is our professional organizations have endorsed the idea of giving those tools to clinicians. It is the idea of team-based care. It is the idea of co-production, eventually, that comes out of it. But you have to overcome 100 years of tradition, that momentum, uh, that, that, well, the trouble is it worked. How did Einstein say it? He said, today's problems are usually yesterday's solutions. We can't solve today's problems using the same thinking we used when we created them. Now, the truth is, is when you get the idea, when it clicks in, wow, it's compelling. I've never seen a clinician that doesn't say, yeah, this is what we're all about you realize that it's methods that we learned in our clinical training 
They just weren't pulled forward, a name put on them, made clear and precise, uh, brought to the front, if you will. Um, but they work very, very nicely. And in that setting, clinicians become your main champions for this kind of change. They really do. The second big body that you face of resistance, uh, well, a uh, short version is it's administration. I like to date it to 1895. Uh, that's when we formalized a particular method. The AHA got its teeth into this idea. Well, it was when Johns Hopkins separated clinical practice from administration. We assigned the clinical outcomes to medical staff and nursing staff. On the clinical side, administration was mostly concerned with money, with cost. Of course, today we understand in a Deming universe that the two are so tightly linked you can't separate them. But very often you're helping organizations understand that mission comes first, and when you get the care of your patients first, properly done, it will drive your financial performance, and it's tying those two sides back together. So it's those two major impediments and then a thousand small uh, facets of them that makes an effective clinical leader. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Kavita, and then uh, I think we've, we've got some interesting questions uh, specifically about your work and, and uh, uh, the, the OPAT uh, program, SOPAT, uh, and also um, we'll get Kadar in here to talk a little bit about the open school and where are we with uh, kind of required uh, QI in, in training. But uh, I guess my question to you, Kavita, is uh, are you the exception or the rule in your system, if, if that doesn't put you too much on the spot. And uh, do you feel that you are surrounded by many who might need still more uh, convincing? Um, well, you know, that we, we did meet our own resistance. So locally, um, I'm not going to say that it was always easy. Um, I think that part of it is we get very um, entrenched in certain ways that we do things, and we recognize problems, but sometimes think that the problem is so big it's um, not surmountable. Um, it's sort of we've always done it this way. Uh, and, you know, there's also, in my particular example, I dealt with um, physician perception versus the patient's ability. I love uh, what Kadar said about sort of co-production of care, um, and I think that there was this sort of um, unease, if you will, because we are dealing with low socioeconomic status and also a generally low literacy patient population. And, um, you know, can this be done and, and this sort of thing. So there was definitely, I think, some, some hesitation there. What I found, though, was that as we developed the program and the success was um, starting to build and people could see that these patients were being safely and effectively treated and that they were happy, um, we got more and more buy-in. And I think what's encouraging is um, when we start to think about how can we approach other problems in other disease states and other clinical settings similarly as a group, you know, and, um, and, and think about sort of what can be instead of saying this can't be done. So the, I think there's been a lot of positive that's come from this, um, but certainly in the beginning we also dealt with our own, um, you know, some resistance. We're very fortunate, however, um, as Dr. Jones pointed out, to have administrative uh, support and executive support um, from, from the um, Parkland Hospital side um, throughout uh, developing the program. 
Um, I know it's things are ongoing and sort of uh, success is kind of uh, leading to kind of more and uh, more initiatives and broadening, as you said, kind of into other kinds of conditions. But somebody has asked about how many months, at least maybe some of your earliest results uh, uh, took. Uh, person asks kind of from start to finish, but um, what, what kinds of time frames would you offer? Um, you know, we started very, very slow. In 2009, it was really a proof of concept, and we had four patients that we saw once a week in clinic. Very slow, very sort of, um, it was a methodical kind of approach to um, building around quality and safety as, you know, the core of our mission. If we're going to develop a new program and, 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 and design a new way of delivering care, we had to make sure that quality was not compromised, safety was not compromised. We started slow, and it took years to kind of ramp up. It's now the standard of care, and I've taken care of more than 3,000 patients um, with this method at Parkland. It is our standard of care today, but certainly, um, you know, the first two years, I would say, was very slow and kind of learning from our mistakes and, and refining in a continuous way to improve on the process. Thanks so much. All right, Kadar, you've perhaps also been looking at some of the comments uh, and questions a little bit about uh, education and training and that very early integration. Uh, Brent and you and others will be leading a program um, with people who are, uh, by and large, already in the professions uh, and, um, and, you know, kind of trying to put things together that haven't always been put together. But uh, folks are going after this at a much earlier phase of education, as is the IHI Open School. So what are some of your thoughts about this? It sounds like people are being innovative. Uh, some wish it was more of a requirement, uh, some of the QI in training. Yeah, you, you know, I think that the balance of making it something required versus something that uh, you know, uh, folks opt into or otherwise, uh, there's, I think there's pluses and minuses on either side of that. I can see it, it may diminish intrinsic motivation if you require it. On the other hand, uh, you get a, a, a more stable, reliable baseline. Uh, set of knowledge around uh, some of these methods that uh, all, you know, in 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 some ways, all trainees ought to have. Um, the the good news is that you know more and more um, medical schools, nursing schools, pharmacy schools, uh, interdisciplinary uh, uh, health uh, health professions educations programs are are uh, asking their trainees. To complete some basic training on quality, quality improvement, and how to manage uh, change, and and how to actually work on systems improvement, and I think that's a really, really good sign. And it, I'll just give you one piece of one. You know, we've run the open school now for more than a decade at IHI. It's our online uh, virtual training academy for quality and safety and and systems improvement. And just just as an example, it took us about eight years to get to a, a million uh, courses completed. Last year, 2017, we had a million courses completed in that single year. So we, we've we've seen massive growth in in the open school uh, courseware being picked up and used by uh, by students in the early stages of their health education. And, and I, I will hasten to add that much of that is uh, the course completions are occurring in the context of training uh, training activities. Uh, so really, really good. I think early uptake of some of these ideas. 
I do, Madge, if I can, I, I want to also, you asked a question earlier about why, why, are, why would there be any resistance to this very natural kind of thinking? If I may, I just want to offer one thought on this. Um, I, I think that um, if, it, if quality and quality improvement is interpreted as a tick box exercise, you know, getting the measures out to public reporting mechanisms, et cetera, then that is very, I, I mean, at least personally, I'll speak for myself here, but I, I don't want to represent all clinicians everywhere. But that is a challenging representation of quality for a clinician that's trying to do well by his or her patients. And so I think the problem with quality, the reputationally, the problem with some of these methods is that it, it, it feels like it's about the, you know, public reporting game and, and you know, getting, you know, receiving or not receiving incentive payments accordingly. Uh, what it, what really appeals to uh, the clinical mind, to the healing professions, to the professional responsibility that Brent and Kavita have talked about, is when you focus on outcome-focused activities. It's solving real problems that stand in the way of, of clinicians serving their patients better. When you're working on something like that, it's totally aligned with clinician practice and, and uh, clinician self-interest. And so I, I think it's it, it may be an interpretation in some part of what it means to be working on quality. Cool. I'll pause there and get it back to you, Matt. Yeah, that's an, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a very interesting observation. I appreciate that, Kadar. Uh, feel free to chat in if uh, that may be kind of what some of you tuned in uh, to our program uh, have also experienced. Uh, let me bring you back in, Brent, uh, in terms of the uh, maybe d- defeating that idea about uh, ticking, you know, uh, ticks and tick marks, I guess you'd say, in boxes, uh, whether that's something uh, that uh, you're also uh, trying to defeat. I also want to ask you another question, uh, which is uh, one of the things about QI, which many would say is a good thing in terms of building a culture in an organization, is that good ideas can come from many, many places and from many, many people. Uh, if you're observant uh, and you, there's an atmosphere that receives those ideas, and uh, that's clearly going up against uh, maybe a hierarchy uh, in many healthcare organizations. And I wonder uh, if that is something that you feel is is still very much, you know, a work in progress. So, so to come to your first question first, Madge, um, at the risk you're you're tempting me to get up on one of my soapboxes. Go for it. Um, most of the external measures uh, are not designed to improve quality. To really get improvement, we studied this at the IOM again. Uh, what you need um, is transparency at a process level. Most clinical decisions are made as the patient interacts with the clinician. And most patients translate and receive their data through that clinician. So you're not just targeting patients with the data, you're targeting the clinicians too. Um, and, and that's what we discovered, that's what we showed, that's what we said. Well, in that setting, um, yeah, what you really want is data aligned along a process to make the process transparent for purposes both of managing the process for best outcomes at the current time, but also for improvement. One of the things we discovered is probably the best method ever devised for measuring variation. And a key part of this whole science is variation measurement, variation science. And so you kind of get them both going together, the ability to measure variation at the same time, the ability to change. A concept that comes out of that is positive deviance. When you're able to measure variation at that scale, you routinely see people who are doing it better. 
So sometimes it takes the form that somebody will hold forth an idea and say, hey, guys, let's try it this way. Sometimes you're just watching practice and something emerges naturally from the practice. You'd be in a position, you'd like to be in a position where you can pick them both up, not just one of them. You see the idea? Mm-hmm. And it gives you that ability to do both sides at once. One of the real challenges we face is that most of the national systems to report on quality it's all done in the name of transparency to support patients, and it's all very poorly. Well, I shouldn't be saying it that generally. There are a few exceptions, but they're rare. Mm-hmm. Where it's done in a useful way, most of it, to my mind, actively damages quality. So if you're an organization that really wants to deliver high-quality care, and that's your mission, and you really believe in it, uh, you need to build your quality systems around your operations, not around a national report card. Stuff that Kavita showed you didn't come out of a national report card. Right. I've never seen anything big like that. So here you have these dramatic improvements, beautiful improvements. I've never seen one come out of a national report card in 30 years. I've been personally associated with about 12 or 14 similar improvement projects across the course of my career. It's been a real blessing. Uh, Common themes do emerge, uh, and it's great to be able to share the methods by which those common successes occur. Um, Yeah, but they don't come out of report cards. They come out of a group who really owns the work at a fundamental level on behalf of their patients. Okay. Well, I did. I did that doubling up and gave you a a second question uh, about hierarchies. But uh, Kavita, maybe I'll uh, get you uh, to jump in. And uh, any thoughts as you're listening to Brent right now? Um, you know, only that uh, I can speak for myself um, as a clinician on the front line and thinking about sort of what motivates me. And, um, you know, I couldn't agree more that it has to be in what Kadar said as well, that it has to go above and beyond something that you tick off or just um, a report card. And I think it kind of goes back to sort of what is the intrinsic motivation for us as as um, as caregivers, providers. We want to do what's best and provide the best quality of care for our patients. And um, I think that there's potential for all sorts of um, improvement projects that can be very impactful. And if we tap into that intrinsic motivation and kind of find that shared purpose um, as teams, none of us work in silos, but really work as teams. And it can start with sort of just identifying, you know, everyday problems um, that we face. Do you feel that your and again, I'm not trying to put you or Parkland on on the spot, but I asked a question really about sort of hierarchy and almost a kind of leveling that can take place in a real QI culture. Uh, what kind of process has that been uh, where you are in your environment? Um- yeah, I've been incredibly um, fortunate. I can't uh, say how fortunate. I'm just really incredibly fortunate to have been given space to to do the work, um, to develop this from a pilot program to sort of what's become standard of care here. It has given me tremendous joy as a physician. If you, we talk about joy at work, and, and as we were alluding to earlier, we hear about physician burnout. This has provided me with tremendous joy and a desire to learn more, think more about this, and really move into the innovation space. Um, and I think that, you know, these types of things 
um, will, will happen, um, you know, whether or not you get all of the support that one would ideally have from maybe um, from an administrative level, it can be more challenging when you have um, less support. I've been blessed with, I think, the early success of the program leading to getting more support to build and grow in the space. Um, so while this may not have been commonplace when I first got here in 2009, I feel like there's more opportunities now for others to kind of get involved and engaged in the space. Okay, thank you so much. Well, we've been alluding to this program that's coming up, and I wanted uh, John to tell you a little bit more about it. Go ahead, John. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just to circle back to the upcoming program, um, the better outcomes and better clinical care are at the heart of today's conversation, and, and it's why we're proud to offer Clinicians Leading Improvement, which is a new professional development program from, from IHI. Uh, this program is for you. If you're a physician, a clinical team member, or an administrator responsible for managing care and, and are unhappy with the status quo, but unsure how to make it uh, make and sustain improvement. Clinicians Leading Improvement is an intensive four-month program that will give you the skills and tools to make those improvements and to make them stick. Uh, we're holding this new program right here at the IHI in Boston on February 11th and next year in 2019, and it features Dr. James's faculty, and he's been with us all afternoon on WIHI. Finally, if you're interested in this program, we will have a free informational call on November 28th at noon. You can find out more about the call and the new program at IHI.org slash clinicians. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks a lot, John. Well, I hope uh, that everyone has taken away some inspiration, uh, and uh, we really wanted to kind of put together some ideas and some concrete work uh, and start to see if we could unpack this notion about clinicians leading improvement, and we hope uh, everyone can take something back. Just maybe some final words uh, from Brent and Kadar. Uh, John's spoken about the program uh, that's coming up, but I guess um, maybe I'll just ask each one of you what makes you hopeful right now, starting with Kadar. Boy, that's a big question. Uh, uh, what makes <laughs> Want me, me to start uh, with Brent? <laughs> no, that's okay. I think, yeah. um, look, I, I, I see in my um, clinical practice environments um, all over, uh, you know, both in where I where I uh, spend my time clinically, but also, um, you know, in, uh, in the organizations I come across, increasingly uh, physicians and senior nurses and social workers and pharmacists uh, leading the way on some of these issues. It's no longer a, a quality and safety are no longer options uh, for uh, the, the professions. And I think that uh, we've gotten uh, far more serious about gaining the technical skills to be able to take action when we see problems in our practices. Uh, and I think that that gives me some hope. I think that gives, uh, gives me a lot of comfort that there's that there's folks out there that are willing to lead the way in this area. Thanks so much, Kator, and thanks for being part of uh, the conversation today. Brent, what gives you hope? You know, I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, it's been massively successful, and I can't tell you, just it's fun um, to watch people, professionals, uh, find their roots and then just accelerate and grow and make big change happen. I like to say we count our successes in lives. The size of the opportunity is staggering. And when I look ahead, I see it happening and it's growing, it's gathering steam. I think the next generation of healthcare is going to be so dramatically better than what we do today. It's going to be a whole new world. 
And some people get to lead that, get to build it. Young people come to me and say, should I enter the healing professions? They hear about the burnout. They hear about the EMRs. They hear about the crap with administration. And I say, if you're in it for the right reasons and in it at the right place, it's never been better. Come join us. All right. Thanks so much. that new world. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brent. Kavita, you get the last word on hope, I guess. Uh, in uh, I think we've been hearing it all along in your remarks about the program and the work that you're doing. Um, I guess, uh, what what are some of the maybe more immediate things you're hopeful about? Well, I'm um, an optimist and incredibly hopeful. And I can tell you that just this morning, we had some medical students residents and clinics that they were talking about what they can do for quality improvement and making a change. And so I think as others alluded to, um, there is so much opportunity and a heightened level of this. Okay, thank you. Uh, for some reason that we, we, we things got a little distorted there, but I think uh, we heard uh, Kavita talk about uh, talking with residents and others, and uh, really sensing uh, the possibilities there. So a big thank you to Brent James, Cato Mate, and Kavita Bavan uh, for your time, and also to our audience. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, take a peek uh, at uh, what's coming up next on WIHI. We're going to have our annual special edition, and that's going to be a recorded uh, keynote from our national forum coming up in December. Uh, We'd still love to see you come there in person, but we are going to bring back uh, a recording of one uh, of the keynotes uh, that we'll offer as a podcast uh, the third week in December to take you through the holidays, and then we have more things coming up in January. Reminder, you can download the chat uh, if you want to keep track of uh, some of the folks you interacted with today and some of the links uh, that were shared. Uh, You'll find all the resources, uh, the chat, the audio, and the slides on IHI.org as of tomorrow. You also, when you get off the program today, you're prompted to take a survey that does help us better understand how to keep improving this program. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Val Weber, Brian Derrick, Pat McTiernan, and Maureen otherwise known as Moberry. It's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.